First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. May the love of God the Father and the grace of Jesus Christ and the joy of the Holy Spirit be multiplied to you this day. So I'd be willing to bet a king's ransom that almost everyone here has seen Disney's Robin Hood. You know, the characters are all animals. It is Disney. It's from, I think, the 70s. So it's that good era of animation. Uh, and, and while the story is based in the fiction of Robin Hood, you know, he steals from the rich and pays the poor, the backdrop of it, it the Disney movie at least, is actually historical. So if you remember in that film, the main villain, is, is Prince John, who, he's a lion, but he's more of a house cat than a top predator. Now, Prince John had taken the throne of England from his, his brother, King Richard, who was off fighting in the Crusades in, in Palestine. And that part is based in real history. See, King Richard of England, known as the Lionheart, for his fierceness and courage in battle, and of course, in the film, he's a lion. You know, no, no originality, but eh, it works. He was the king of England during the time of the Third Crusade. And so he led his armies into Palestine uh, to battle and at, at the end of the 12th century. Now, on his way back to England, he was captured and eventually held prisoner in Germany by the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI. And that was really neither holy nor Roman and barely an empire, but he was held in this castle by basically a big German king. And for his release, Henry VI demanded 150,000 marks, which is basically 50 tons of silver. And for reference, that's two to three times what the king would take in a year in taxes. And if it helps you any... Uh, it's about the weight of seven and a half elephants. Now, we don't see elephants around here every day, but we know they're big. So England was taxed dramatically to pay for Richard's free freedom. You know, gold and silver were taken from the church altars. Landowners were, were taken for a quarter of all their worth. Knights and feudal lords were made to pay. Uh, and the king's own treasury, which was not even recovered from this crusade, I was emptied again. And so perhaps now you've caught my use of the phrase, a king's ransom, at the, at the outset. Now usually when, when we hear that today, we, we think of an absurdly large amount of money. But originally, it comes from this little piece of history. That 50 tons of silver that England paid to have her king returned was the king's ransom. Richard, Richard's people paid dearly for their king's freedom. But what we'll see out of this text today 
is just the reversal of that. Because where earthly kings were ransomed by their people, the heavenly king came to pay the ransom for his people. King Richard's freedom depended upon his people's ability and willingness to pay such a high price for him. That king needed his people to pay his ransom. But King Jesus did not need his people to pay his ransom. He didn't come because he needed anything from his people. Jesus came because his people need everything from him. Listen to Jesus describe himself in Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The last time I, I preached, way back at the beginning of September, we heard from the Apostle Peter in this chapter, the verses 13 through 17. And he had just begun his exhortations to holiness. In several different ways, we heard the command from him to be holy because God is holy. Now, God's holiness means that he is pure and righteous and just. There is nothing evil or corrupt in him. He is not like the world that is just soaked with sin. And because he is our God, he commands us to be like him, to be holy as he is holy. Now, in these four verses that we're looking at today, Peter has given the church another reason to be holy. And it's this, the great value of the price that purchased our freedom. Now, seven silver elephants is a lot. It's, it's something like $35 million in today's market. And how much freedom could $35 million purchase for you today? Now, I just saw there was some mansion being sold for $42 million, so not a mansion, apparently. However, you'd never have to work again. You could live almost anywhere for the rest of your life. You know, you could winter in Fiji, spend your summers in the Swiss Alps, and you could even bring along your family and friends if you wanted. But that is not the kind of freedom Peter is talking about. Because the ransom Peter is talking about is the ransom that Christ paid to free us from total slavery. Before Christ ransomed you, you were a slave. And everyone who does not know Christ is still a slave today. Well, I'm an American, you say. I've never been enslaved to anyone. But Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Our sinful nature, with our desires for sin and the guilt that comes with it, is the sum of the futile ways inherited from your forefathers that Peter is talking about here. So in this sermon, I want to show two things to you, two main things. First being 
our state of slavery before we were ransomed, and then the second being the immeasurable price of our ransom. So our slavery to sin. One of the schemes that the devil uses to throw us off of the gospel is to downplay our need for God to do something. Many times, you know, you may hear Jesus offered to you as the solution to all kinds of problems, like finding purpose or gaining wealth or making yourself secure. And these are, in a sense, very true, because Jesus does offer a return to your true purpose and treasures beyond what human minds can imagine and security beyond what anything insurance can buy. But these problems are often spoken as if they are the main issue humans have. And so the great problem we have goes unspoken. And Jesus is made to help us in the area of our felt needs, but not in the area of our real need. Imagine a scenario with me. So you want to buy something, so you take out a loan, and it's with some disreputable loan shark. The money comes to you right away, but when you look to check your account balance, you see that you now owe twice as much as what you took out. So not knowing what to do, you go looking for advice, and some people tell you that uh, you should just try paying it off earlier. And others say, you know, don't worry about it, this is just, this is just how loans work, it'll be fine. And some may even go so far as to say, you need to redo your entire budget and, and change your lifestyle until you get this paid off, or under control at least. So as you're thinking that over, you look at your balance yet again, but now you owe four times what you originally took out. So now being a little bit more desperate, you go into your trusted family banker, you know, the guy that your parents have used for years. And he's also the guy who told you not to take the loan shark's money, but he's not going to say, I told you so. After he looks at all the paperwork you bring in, he points out in the fine print on page 73 and a half, loan doubles every day until paid in full. Now, suspend your disbelief for a minute. I know that's not how loan documents are written. And no one would get away with something so bad. They would cover it in jargon, and then they would get away with it. So your trusted family banker sees this and says, there's no way you're going to be able to pay this off. The terms are so bad for you, you'll never get out from under it unless you pay it in full right now. So then... Let me ask, what was wrong with the first bits of advice that the people were giving? Because normally, they'd be pretty spot on. You know, sometimes you just shouldn't worry about it. Sometimes you should try paying it off earlier. Sometimes you should change your lifestyle so you can deal with it. But the real problem was that they didn't understand the real problem. And they could never offer you a solution for your issue because they didn't even know what your issue was. Now, this is what happens when we offer Jesus to people as the solution to problems they think they have. You know, someone feels like they're aimlessly wandering through life, 
So we offer Jesus as the one who will give them purpose. Or we see that people are concerned about, about gaining wealth. So Jesus is put forward as a way to get rich quick and stay rich. Or we see that the insecurity of the times has people worried. So we offer Jesus to them as the best cosmic insurance policy we know. And when we do just that, Jesus becomes a means to an end. He's good at solving the problems you think you have, but that's all you think you need from him. But let Jesus define for himself what he came to do. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And what, what I quoted earlier from John 8, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. To use Peter's wording here, the problem of humanity is that we're enslaved to the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. We're not just purposeless or poor or insecure without Christ. We are slaves who will not remain in the house of God. Because when our forefather Adam, the first man, sinned against God in the garden, he sold himself into slavery to sin and death and the devil. And every child born to him in his slavery is born a slave like himself with the inheritance of death. And unless we understand the problem we have without Christ for what it truly is, we will not understand the gospel of what Christ has done. I mean, ask yourself this question. Why would Jesus have to go through the excruciating pain of the cross if all we needed was to rediscover our purpose or find some security? But if you listen to some of the ways that that Jesus has talked about and some of the ways people say he affects their lives, you might be hard-pressed to find a need for the cross at all. It's only when you allow God to define the problem for what it really is that you can see the solution can be nothing other than the cross. Because you and I were slaves of sin and even joyfully obeyed all our former master's commands, we were in need of someone else to purchase our freedom. And the one who did purchase our freedom is also the only one who could. The king's ransom. So in the ancient world, when a slave was ransomed, the master who currently owned him would, would be paid a certain sum of money by someone else to buy that slave and his service, or maybe even to buy that slave's freedom. But it's the slave's current master who would get paid. But we need to see that Peter is not saying that Jesus paid a ransom price to sin or death or the devil. Jesus did not pay them, even though they, they were and are 
the slave master of all sinners. See, in the way that the world did things, silver and gold were the right currency for buying and selling a slave. But Peter says very specifically that the kind of slavery he's talking about here was bought out not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, we know pretty plainly that when Peter says the precious blood of Christ, he's talking about his death. But why compare Jesus' blood to the blood of a lamb without blemish or spot? Well, to understand this and to understand who Jesus paid the ransom to, we need to look back at the first Passover. Now, I'm only going to give a summary of this, but you can find the whole story in the book of Exodus in your Bibles. So the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And God had sent Moses as his man to bring them out of slavery. And he does it mainly by making demands on Pharaoh who held them in bondage. And when Pharaoh would not listen, God worked signs and wonders by means of the ten plagues to show God's glory over the gods of Egypt and to force Pharaoh to do as God had commanded. Now, when the Lord was about to send the tenth plague upon Egypt, which was the death of the firstborn, he spoke to Moses, saying this, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh was the one who claimed to be Lord over the Jews. And if another nation had offered him a sum of money in silver or gold to purchase the people, he may have even sold them for that price. But Pharaoh's claim over them as slave master was false. The Passover proved that Pharaoh wasn't Israel's real master. Because if Pharaoh had actually owned the people of Israel, then God would have had to have paid him for their release. But Israel did not put the blood on their doorway so Pharaoh would see it and then let them go. Pharaoh was not the one paid by this blood to end the slavery. The blood of that lamb without blemish was there for the Lord who said, And when I see the blood, 
I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Judgment was coming to Egypt that night, and at the same time, redemption, a ransom, was coming to Israel, both at the hands of the Lord. Now Peter, who wrote this letter that we're going through, he celebrated this Passover every year of his life. And he even celebrated three of them with the Lord Jesus, where he no doubt came to understand that the lamb that his family killed every year to spread its blood upon their door was just a foreshadowing of the final Passover sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ. The blood of that Passover lamb, that first Passover lamb, ended Pharaoh's slavery over Israel. But the lamb's blood was there for the Lord to see. And the blood of Jesus ended sin's slavery over his people in the same way. In Colossians 2, we see how this was accomplished. Paul writes, And you who were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the Passover, the Lord said, On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. And by doing so, he overthrew the slavery that they had over Israel. And in the cross, the debt we owed because of our sin was totally paid by Jesus' death. Again, we saw this in John 8. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And through fear of death, the devil had subjected us to lifelong slavery. But now the record of debt that stood against us is paid in full, and we are no longer subject to death because of our sin. And so there is no longer anything that the devil can hold over us to make demands on our service. Every one of Pharaoh's mighty chariots were thrown into the Red Sea and drowned. So he had no power over Israel any longer. And every one of the accusations that the devil has against you, because of your sin, has been drowned in another Red Sea. Christ's blood paid for your ransom. The righteous judgment God has against every sinner Christ paid in full for his own people. This was God's hand-picked man for the job, as Peter says, foreknown by him before the world began. Now, the devil and sin will come with accusations that they still own you, that you still need to obey them. But the ransom has been paid. They have no power over you any longer. 
And we know that the ransom was accepted by God again because of what Peter tells us here. God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. Satan's two weapons, sin and death, were broken by Jesus. He never sinned, though tempted just as we are. And he showed by his resurrection that death is dead. So the point Peter is making here is going to be our conclusion. I said at the beginning of the sermon, in light of the great price paid for your ransom, be holy because God is holy. But we hear that wrong if we add or else to it. Be holy as God is holy or else is not what Peter said. The wicked taskmasters of Egypt kept the Jews in line by beating them down. And we are so used to this kind of beatdown from sin and the devil when we were under their slavery that we don't know another way of life. But God is not the same kind of ruthless taskmaster that sin and the devil were when you were under their power. And it's because of his holiness. You have to look and see how beautiful his holiness is. His holiness doesn't give us an or else. His holiness is beautiful. Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are all who take refuge in him. And David rightly says of God in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus, because he is the word of God, who was with God, and is God, is the perfect image of the holiness of God. So if you want to see how beautiful God's holiness is, you have got to look at Jesus. His holiness includes being so good as to save us from our slavery by shedding his own precious blood, no less. Holiness like this is irresistibly good. See, God's holiness means he's not vindictive toward you. He's not going to pull the rug out from underneath you. He's not building you up just to knock you down. And you may be sitting there right now silently arguing with me saying, I don't think about God like that. Well, I know I do. And I think that most of you do as well. And I think I can prove it to you. Do you get suspicious when something good happens? Do you always assume something bad is sure to follow? This is how we talk in our culture. Well, I inherited some money. I bet the taxes will be killer. The sun is out today. Bet it'll be cold tomorrow. Something good happened to me. When will the other shoe drop? We Midwesterners, probably others too, but I know us best, think that pessimism is just good policy. If you're a pessimist, you'll either, either always be right or pleasantly surprised. How many times have you heard that one? How many times have you said that one? 
So the, but the problem with pessimism is that you end up being suspicious of God. You end up being suspicious that God is just the same kind of taskmaster that the devil is. Now, when Satan was your master, when you were a slave to sin, you truly had no reason to hope that anything good would happen. Because Satan delighted in causing you pain and misery. But now God is your father. You are purchased by the blood of Jesus. His blood is on you, covering you. You're wearing his coat. You're a part of his church, his beloved bride. So God is not out to get you, to make you miserable. In fact, he's set all his power. Think about that statement, all God's power. He's set all his power out to do you good. And this is the beauty of his holiness. Because God is not like us. He is better than us. God is seeking to do you eternal good. And if you would put away your pessimism for a moment, you would see that around every corner, hiding behind every rock and bush and tree, just ready to jump out at you, the goodness and grace and love of God are just waiting there for you. Psalm 23, probably everyone knows that well, the shepherd's psalm. It ends with, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me every day of my life. But follow is not a strong enough word. Because every other place that this word appears is actually translated pursue. Surely goodness and mercy pursue me. Goodness and mercy hunt me down every day. So maybe you are just like me. And you have that Midwestern pessimism that makes you suspicious of God's intentions for you. You feel like God is hunting you down and chasing you. And you don't know what he'll do if he catches you. So you keep running from him. Well, the truth is, he is hunting you down. And there is no escape. In that song of Moses that Caleb talked about, The Lord says, I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. But he is chasing you down as a father who when he catches you, will scoop you up in his arms and cover you with his love. Don't confuse your father's love for Satan's hate. God is not your ruthless taskmaster. He is holy. He's your father who ransomed you with Jesus' blood. And if you would stop running from him and let him catch you, you will see that he is more good than you could ever dare to imagine. Are you still suspicious of what he might do? Do you doubt your father's goodness? Fear not. 
he is good in spite of your doubts. Have you been running from him all your life? Are you afraid you have forsaken him for too long? Fear not. Your ransom has been paid. God was so pleased with Jesus' sacrifice for you that he raised him from the dead and glorified him above the heavens so that your faith and your hope might be in him. So stop running. Don't be afraid. He is holy. He is gracious, generous, kind, tender. He is lavish and extravagant in love for you. Not a single treasure from heaven was kept there. Every single one of them came to earth with Christ to pay your ransom. Let's pray.